light within all light, sound amongst all sounds, soul behind all souls, at the breaking of dawn, at the coming of day, we wait and watch. In the light of this day, let us know new shinings in our soul, in the growing colours of new beginnings all around us. Let us feel the first lights of our hearts. Let us be open to the sound. Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Our summer school theme this year provides an opportunity to see many sides of a single subject. We heard that wonderful talk yesterday from Sheena on the nature and value of our nocturnal dreams, the dreams of our sleep. My focus is something different. It had to be, really. <laughs> the dreams of our waking times, the dreams we have some greater control over, Possibly. The dreams of our daytime. We all have them. We all create them. We all want them to be true. We wish, we hope, or we dream. But you'll hear a lot from me in a moment. But it's usually better to start these sorts of things with a story. A piece written by someone else about dreams in this case. And this one does not take place in Swaffham, or London, as far as I know, or even Dreamland. Yet it's a place of the imagination, and it's Roger Hargreaves' imagination. This is Mr. Dave. <laughs> now this is a story about Mr. Daydream. You know what he looks like, don't you? Because this is his picture on the front of the book. But it's also a story about a boy called Jack. And if you don't know what he looks like, here is a picture of Jack. Now, Jack was always a very good little boy. He always ate up all his lunch. He always went to bed when he was told. He always said please and thank you. But Jack was a daydreamer. Whenever he was supposed to be thinking about something, or meditating, he found himself thinking about something else. Daydreaming. And one day, Jack was at school. He was sitting at his desk, listening to his teacher, talking about history. And it was a very warm day, and Jack was glad he was sitting at the back of the classroom, next to the open window. And suddenly, out of the corner of his eye, Jack saw something outside the window on the grass in front of the school. 
something blue. It was a small, cloud-shaped figure. Jack couldn't believe his eyes. The figure looked at Jack, looking at him, smiled and waved. And Jack looked back at his teacher, who was still talking. Then he got up quietly, ever so quietly, and slipped out of the open window. And he crossed the grass to the strange-looking, cloud-shaped figure. Hello, he said. Who are you? I'm Mr Daydream, said the figure. What's your name? Jack, said Jack. I'm going off on an adventure, said Mr Daydream. Would you like to come with me? Oh, yes, please, replied Jack. Very well, then, said Mr Daydream. And putting his two fingers in his mouth, and I can't do this, he did a big whistle. And he let out the loudest whistle Jack had ever heard in his life. And a huge bird swooped down out of the sky and landed beside Jack and Mr Daydream. Come on, said Mr Daydream to Jack, and climbed on the bird's back. And Jack climbed on too. It really was an enormous bird. And there was plenty of room for both of them. Hold on, said Mr Daydream. And they held on tight. The huge bird flapped its huge wings. And suddenly they were high up in the air. They flew faster and faster over the countryside. They flew over fields and farms and towns and hills and trees and valleys until they were far, far away. Far away from Jack's school. And it was very exciting. Mr Daydream turned to Jack. Would you like to go to Africa? He shouted. They were travelling so fast now, Jack nodded his head and held on even tighter. And they flew and they flew across the sea. And suddenly, it seemed in no time at all, there below them was Africa. The bird landed in a jungle clearing and Jack and Mr Daydream climbed off the bird's back. It was very hot. Come on, said Mr Daydream, let's go and explore. So they set off, pushing their way through the jungle. And suddenly, in the middle of a clearing, they saw an elephant. Hello, Mr. Daydream, trumpeted the elephant down its trunk, because he knew him. <laughs> Would you like a lift? Yes, please, replied Mr. Daydream, and the elephant reached out its trunk, picked him up and put him on his back. And then he reached out his trunk again and picked up Jack and put him on his back. And it was oh so high. And the elephant carried them through the jungle until they came to a river. And then he set them down on the ground said goodbye and went back into the jungle. How are we going to cross the river? asked Jack. Perhaps I can be of assistance, wheezed a particularly oily voice from the river. They looked and there was a crocodile. <laughs> Use my back as a bridge, said the crocodile. <laughs> he was very helpful. <laughs> And they were halfway across the river on the crocodile's back when the crocodile grinned a nasty little grin. 
all teeth, no smile. <laughs> and then flicking his enormous tail and shooting Jack and Mr. Daydream high in the air, the crocodile opened his large, horrible mouth and waited. It was very frightening. <laughs> oh dear, gasped Jack as he looked down at that enormous mouthful of teeth. Oh dear, oh help. <laughs> and Mr. Daydream, upside down beside him, put two fingers in his mouth and let out that very large whistle of his. And suddenly, just as the crocodile's mouth was about to snap, the bird swooped down from the sky. And Mr. Daydream and Jack landed right on his back. Phew, said Jack. Bother, said the crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> well, I promised you an adventure, didn't I? Grinned Mr. Daydream. You certainly did, said Jack. And now, said Mr. Daydream, I think we should go to Australia. <laughs> and they did. And Jack learned how to throw a boomerang so that it always came back to him. And now, said Mr. Daydream, I think we'll go to the North Pole. And they did. And Mr. Daydream fell right up to his middle in a snowdrift. <laughs> and now, said Mr. Daydream, I think we'll go to the Wild West. And they did. And Mr. Daydream found a huge ten-gallon cowboy hat. <laughs> the trouble was, he put it on and he couldn't see out. Jack! He called from under the hat. Jack! Jack! Suddenly Jack realised it wasn't Mr. Daydream saying his name. It was his teacher. And Jack wasn't in the Wild West. He was sitting at his school desk. Jack, said the teacher again, you've been daydreaming. It was true. He had. But do you know something? Daydreaming is much more fun than history. <laughs> <laughs> the wonders of Mr. Daydream. Well, daydreaming is something we do in the day, by its nature. And our hymn this morning is about walking in the light, bringing things to fruition, perhaps in the day, but our dreams. So our first hymn is number 165 in your purple books. And during this, if the children would like to leave us for their day of dreaming... Be lovely. So, but please rise as you're able. The spirit lives to set us free. Thank you, Katie. <laughs>
It's over to you. Now you'll all have brought your pens with you, as asked. And I'm going to ask you to write on two post-it notes that you have in front of you. Some of you will have four on a hymn book. That's because there weren't enough hymn books to go round. But you need two post-its each. And the first post-it you need is the tulip-shaped post-it. And the second one is the round flower. I know Unitarians don't like direction or instruction, but it's quite important. (laughs) First tulip, second flower. And if anybody's not got post-its, there's more here, but there should be plenty of spares on books and things. So... uh... Everyone okay? Now, these will be collected and put on the windows and displayed, so they should be anonymous, and there's no need to connect individuals to words, but they are a truthful collection of who we are, or who we thought we might be. Now, on the first post-it, on the tulip, I want you to think back to your thoughts as a child, perhaps under ten. What role or job did you imagine that you would live when you became an adult? And did that ever become true? And I just want the role, place, the job, and a yes or no. Or as there are so many Unitarians here, a sort of (laughs) is fine. Can you have more than one? The main one. The main one. Or if you can combine them. The train driving nurse would be brilliant. Now, on the second post-it, on the round flower, I'm going to ask you to think back, if you have to, to when you left full-time education for the first time. I know not everyone is in that position just yet, but for those of you that aren't, that moment now. Whatever you think of as full-time education. 
and to put what you expect, you expect at that point your life to develop how you expected it to play out. It might be the same as you first posted, it might be different. But single or partnered, working for a salary, caring for others, or both, or something different. Just something in there in your own words. And we'll play a little music while you're doing that. So the tulip is your school days, and the second post-it is full-time. When you left full-time education, where did you see yourself going in the world? My glamorous assistants, Catherine and Cody, will come and collect the post-its. those later (laughs) now I'm going to start this piece today with a very quick skirt through three writers from the 1400s to the modern day all of whom write of the purpose of life and the urgency with which we might need to live it the question for me is how we might respond to their urgency and what in that scenario is the true purpose or reward of our existence Nothing too ambitious for a Tuesday morning. (laughs) But bear with me. And those of you near the back, avoid the open windows. (laughs) So to the purpose of life. With a 16th century writer, Ignatius Loyola, in his book Spiritual Exercises, wrote that the true purpose of human life 
The reason we humans exist is to praise, love and serve God their Lord and by doing these things, save our souls. And simple. That's it, really. We exist to serve God and to save our souls. And surely we're all up for that, aren't we? We'll dream on. In the 21st century, perhaps we can start to ignore these simplistic and paternalistic directions. Imposition of the church on our daily lives. We've moved on from that, haven't we? Well, perhaps. Maybe. Maybe not. We still need some guidance. If not to tell us what to do, we still need something, perhaps providing us with the inspiration for life for guidance on how we might live if we hope to make ourselves, our communities, our world a better place. Now, around 100 years earlier than Loyola, Thomas Akempis, a 15th century Dutch monk and writer, wrote The Imitation of Christ. Now, it was a book intended to provide guidance to those in monastic situations, the true religious Yet although very few of us are in need of instruction in 15th century monkery, (laughs) quick dips into that book never fail to provide snippets of inspiration and suggestion around which you might reflect on how to live your life. Now I shall not pretend that Thomas Akempis is always the cheeriest of reads, (laughs) yet he provides that cover that covers a range of emotions and commitments. I expect his was one of the first privy books, A book you keep by the privy in order to dip into when you have a few quiet moments. In our movement, I think Stephen Lingwood's Unitarian Life probably needs that same. It's a positive view. As I say, Thomas Akempis is rarely humorous. And I do want to read a little from chapter 23 of his book, which is a meditation on death. Now, gloomy you might think, yet of course death's the only true certainty in our life. It's ever-present, and to shy away from it will not make it disappear. And it's for this I'm grateful that Thomas Akempis wrote his piece. Cleverly, it provides food for thought about life and your actions, not death. And here's a few choice extracts. Oh, how dull is the heart of one who thinks only of the present and does not provide against the future. You should order your every deed and thought as though today were the day of our death. If you're not ready to die today, will tomorrow find you better prepared? Tomorrow is uncertain. How can you be sure of tomorrow? Happy and wise is the one who endeavours to be, during life, as they wish to be found at the end. While you enjoy health, you can do much good. Do not rely on friends and do not deny the salvation of your soul to some future date. Act now, dear soul. Do all you can. While you have time... Gather the riches of everlasting life. Think only of salvation and care for the things of God. Make friends now by honouring the saints of God 
and by following their example. Now those are extracts. The entire meditation is too long to read here, but it also suggests some approaching to living life that I find quite hard to follow. A Kempis is, of course, a monk living in a harsh life, and in his meditation he talks of living the harsh life of discipline, obedience, penance and denial, and bearing all trials for the love of Christ. So the peace can be a little tough, but you need to know the context. However, for me, the key part of that meditation is the focus on living life today. Being prepared for the end, yes, but focusing in a positive way. Live your life now. Take actions now that will bring you your salvation. Don't wait. Don't put off until tomorrow. Whatever that might be, do it now. Now, echoing this worldview, the contemporary American writer Stephen Tyler, who we will hear more of later, speaks of this. In a piece from the late 1960s, he wrote of the need to live your life fully, to recognise your ageing, to constantly reassess who you are and what you hope to achieve, against the words of theologians, philosophers and anyone else you might care to imagine, those you admire and, importantly, those you do not. But remember tomorrow, in his words, the good Lord might take you away. Do not put off to tomorrow that which you might do today. Gloomy stuff? I'm not sure it is. The promise of the, end, the light at the end of the tunnel has been said to provide inspiration for many travellers. There is hope somewhere in the future. Life will not always be like this. Things can only get better. That was D-Ream. I hadn't realised that. That's good, mm -hmm. isn't it? <laughs> Salvation is here for the taking. Now, as an aside, at the Treasury in the 1990s, there was a great poster on someone's desk, certainly not officially sanctioned, that suggested that as a result of government cuts, the light at the end of the tunnel had been turned off until further notice. <laughs> It made me laugh, but it, it does give some genuine guidance for thought there. Perhaps we need to resurrect the poster. But it's the light at the end of the tunnel that drives us forward. But what is that light? For those such as Loyola and Akempis, the light was most certainly associated with death, but was, in reality, a life to be found through salvation. To live in connection with God, with Christ and all the saints, as they would put it. Salvation is both an end-of-life moment and as a current life moment. Salvation is achieved, or can be, now. And for many across the world, from many faiths, this notion of salvation and being swept up to some heavenly domain for eternity is the strongest light at the end of the tunnel. For Unitarians, it's not so straightforward. In this room... There will be a mix of views around the end of life, around what might happen to us, to our souls, to our memories. For some, heaven will be a very real prospect. For others, the idea of lasting memory, of leaving a legacy in some way, is the eternal life we might seek or expect.
But it matters not where you see the salvation or where you see the destination. Whereas it's usually said that Unitarians are on many paths leading to one truth. For salvation, I suggest we're all on the same path, but heading to different destinations. It's an annoying concept, because the first image is easy to picture, and the second is just a mess. (laughs) And there's the rub. It's confused, it's uncertain, it makes little sense, and the more you try to unpick and classify, the more complicated it becomes. It's a very Unitarian conundrum. Yet our salvation, in this life or the next, is surely our aim. The saving of our souls, the infusion of light into our minds and our hearts, the knowledge that we have helped. But aren't we supposed to be talking about dreams? Why are we now wittering on about life, death, salvation and those forever long and winding Unitarian paths? Well, earlier I asked you to write down some of your dreams, your aspirations, your daydreams onto post-its. Now, all good talks require post-its and this one is no exception. You'll recall there were two sets of aspirations A capture of dreams from two key moments in our lives. Two dreams, perhaps, where our lives might go, of the role we might play in the world. And the first took us back to our childhood, to the all-too-obvious, what job will I do when I leave school? What role will I play in the world when I leave school? Now, given some of the more personal elements that might come up here, we're not going to link to any individuals at all, but I'm just going to read out a handful of them, and then I'm going to put, put them up on the window so we can look at them a bit later on. But someone was going to be a pilot. Well, I don't know if there are any pilots here, but that person isn't. <laughs> and this one was to be a doctor, and that didn't happen either. And a teacher... And our teacher is here. Somewhere, there's a teacher here. Wanted to be a writer? No. And a teacher? Sort of. (laughs) I'm glad someone did it. Doctor? Yes. Librarian? Sort of. I guess most Unitarians are sort of librarians. <laughs> now, there's no yes or no on this one, and I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> Dancing nun who drives a bus. <laughs> we have another failed doctor. <laughs> We have a TV presenter working at a local shop that never happened. (laughs) Probably something arty. No. (laughs) They're wonderful. And I'm going to put more of these up as we go. But all these things, lots of doctors, lots of teachers, it's great. So what happened when we left school? We got a bit of reality in here. These were the... This was unconstrained, really. 
When you're at school, you're unconscious. You have no idea. What could it be? It could be anything at all, couldn't it, that when you leave? And it would just be whatever you want. But now we have some of the second ones. This is where later on, after society had done its nasty bits to you and made you a bit more realistic about the world, what was going to happen? Well, you were going to be an international economist, except you weren't. <laughs> uh, a museum creator, a cr- curator, I don't know if that one happened. Nice thought. Married with kids, with own house, a writer and an artist. A retail manager. Precise. A teacher. They were going on to train for teaching. They were going to become a translator, and they did become a translator. Living an alternative lifestyle and community with others. I wonder if that happened. Thoughts of teaching. Don't know if that happened. Totally uncertain. (laughs) That hasn't changed. (laughs) There's some good ones here. But we're starting to narrow down. We've got fewer doctors over there, fewer lawyers. Um, Teachers still run between the two. Interesting. As I say, we'll put more of these up a little bit later on. And we can look around them. Now, while the first job plans of the future were developing minds, trying to make sense of the world, the second, the more grown-up dreams are the expectations of the role that we might have, and they were conditioned by the environment in which we emerged. Expectations that were placed upon us, perhaps, by others. The second set of dreams are very different to the first, generally. They're images we had or have of the lives we genuinely wanted or wanted to lead. No longer unconstrained, as our childhood hopes were. They're now constrained, perhaps by ourselves, perhaps by others. (coughs) But this is where we truly begin to align our spiritual yearnings with our more creaturely desires. Full-time education is when you come out with some great ideas for your place in the world. You're going to change it all, because now you know you can. We begin to connect more with the deeper core of our purpose. We have the ability to deliver on our own promises. We're equipped with at least some of the skills that we might need to make those hopes, those aspirations come true. We've learned to both dance and drive a bus. But do we make the most of that opportunity? And what is it that prepares us for these lives as truthfully as possible? Well, that's different for all of us. The American theologian and spiritual practitioner Thomas More, he's still alive, nothing to do with Wolf Hall. This other Thomas More has written in his book, The Soul's Religion, that the necessary link between our soul, the true inner self, and the spirit is made only through delivering and developing a way of life, the way we live our life, true to our vision. If soul and spirit are not linked in this way, if our spirit is allowed to soar and drift without the necessary ballast that the soul can provide, then we will never move on. Now, Moore does believe strongly in the value of our dreams in developing our spiritual practice, 
and determining the life we want to lead. And the dreams more refers to are those we experience when we're sleeping, not the aspirations I will be focusing on. But although he had earlier in his career as a therapist believed in the potential meaning of dreams we experience when sleeping, he later shifted his view and started to see these as far more mysterious and less explainable. But he still needed a way to bring those sleeping dreams into his life. And in this approach, Moore is following the guide of James Hillman. And Hillman, in his book, The Dream and the Underworld, he recommends letting a dream take you into the unknown, rather than trying to decipher or explain it. The dream becomes part of you, and if you're willing, part of the lives you share it with. But it's not something that carries an explicit single meaning. It makes you who you are. So this approach to the dream allows us to think about other meanings, differing definitions to what a dream is. Thomas More's move away from the explicit meaning of our sleeping dreams brings us to the role, perhaps, of our active, wakeful imagination, operating in our conscious times, and how these dreams, or better described as daydreams, might bring about change within. Now, we heard earlier the Roger Hargreaves story, a day, Mr. Daydream. A blast from the past for many, I'm sure, and perhaps a new story for some. I'm not going to suggest it was written as a deep theological work with hidden references to tomes of immense depth and persuasion. It is a short children's story, and it works for tall children too. <laughs> and the story means a lot for me. It was the only Mr. Men book I owned as a child. I had friends who had lots more. They had posters too, but I had the one Mr. Man book, Mr. Daydream. And it was a gift from my grandmother. Not this one, but there we go. And it was about me. And I have no idea if that was the intention when it was bought. It's far more likely it was the one on the front of the shelf when it was chosen. But so far as I was concerned, Mr. Daydream was bought for me because it described who I was. I daydreamed. I had a fantasy world I escaped to whenever I had the chance. Now, I was not an unhappy child. I could not write a despairing memoir about a terrible, deprived, abuse-laden childhood. <laughs> but I did live in a fantasy world. I was a spaceman. I was a disc jockey. I had loads of money but didn't flaunt it. <laughs> my parents worked in amazing jobs. My father was often on television. We flew to Paris for weekends away in our own aeroplane that my father flew. None of these things were true. But many were relayed to my playground friends or written into my Monday morning journal where we wrote about what we'd done. And my mother got bored on open days trying to explain to my teachers that my diary wasn't 100% accurate. And I loved living in my little bubble. Perhaps it's because I had a happy childhood I was able to create these special worlds. Maybe I had to. I don't know. But I hope and I pray that I was not the only child that lived this fantasy life. 
Not only for my own sanity, it would help to know that, (laughs) but also because I firmly believe that this was a great way to open up and explore my world of possibilities. As a small boy, I could daydream the most wonderful things into existence. I could build and expand whole new worlds in my head and then spend an afternoon living them out in the privacy of my own house or with friends along the road. (coughs) These were not confined to solitary games. And these helped me to become the person I am today. My dreams, my daydreams are the shafts of light I followed and I do follow when trying to determine who I might be and what I might wish to become, and what changes I might want to see in the world. And this is where I concur with Thomas More. I can recall only one or two sleep dreams from my childhood, and they belong to a different talk. The others are forgotten on the surface, although I accept, as More and Hillman suggest, they'll have become a part of me and shaped me from the inside. But those sleeping dreams are not, to my conscious mind, the aspirations or experiments I needed to follow. But my daydreams are my aspirations. Daydreams are the opportunity to explore, to allow your subconscious to feed your conscious, to break the impossible step to becoming something better. Yet grounded in reality, the ballast of the soul. So where on earth are daydreams taking us? How do we dream of a better world? Something better for all? Are they taking us to another place in earth? Or is this the time for us to build heaven right here? Might God's will be done, surely the most impossible aspiration for us all. Might God's will be done by us on earth as it is in heaven? Is that a dream? And why would we bother? Which takes us back, perhaps, to the words of Stephen Tyler, the writer I referred to earlier. Now, Tyler writes a personal reflection, literally, of the encouragement he receives simply by looking at himself in a mirror. The lines on his face remind him of a time already spent reaching for dreams. But also, as with Thomas Akempis, on the need to keep reaching out. Life is short. Both Akempis and Tyler know this. Live your life and set your ambition to achieve the most you can. So what should we spend this last day on earth doing? How might we best spend that time? And this is where we need to move for a need to spiritual dimension to this whole piece. From where do we draw our inspiration what, what, what might we use to shape our dreams? How do we ensure we're working to a better collective future and not a selfish, self-obsessed nirvana? Stephen Tyler, when contemplating this, refers to the need to live and learn from fools and from sages. Fools and sages. They both have lessons for us all. I'm not sure which of the two camps I might sit in, Perhaps if I'm lucky, both at different times. 
Yet the reality is we live and we learn, and we shape and we build, and we start to provide and deliver the future we need to believe necessary. And we get that information, that inspiration, from a wide range of sources. Now, I quoted Ignatius Loyola at the start of this, his view on the perfect life, the true purpose of our existence. To praise, love and serve God the Lord, and by doing this thing, to save our souls. So perhaps our lives, following our dreams, may have something to do with God. Maybe salvation has something to do with delivering God's will. That awkward G word again. At a Unitarian event, how could he? (laughs) We don't believe in God. We do believe in God. Should we believe in God? Is there a God? Who is a God? Or even what is God? It doesn't matter. Perhaps I dare to say with 60 people in this room this morning, we're looking at 80 different ideas of what God might be. Probably more. God can be so many different things, so many feelings, a lens through which to view the world. So we don't have to use the name. But many of the fools and the sages that we might learn from will have used the word. And we're just going to have to be grown up enough now to cope with that. But let's call it the divine. Or the something, the connector, the sense of beauty, calm and perfection that we are sometimes able to glimpse in the world. Not always and rarely to order. Yet somewhere, as we get older and those lines form on our faces, we begin, I believe, to see those greater connections. The need for a dream of sacred beauty rather than personal triumph. Sometimes in special places, that sense of the sacred can come upon us. Beauty of nature, but more than that. The calm of prayer or meditation, but more than that. The sense of love and awe and awakening that sometimes accompanies us, but more than that too. We're looking at the perfect dream. And this sense of connection to something greater can inspire. It can hold us, suspend us in a new and holy place. Delivering God's will, bringing salvation, defining the dreams we might follow, is quite simply living in a way that benefits the universe in which we live and breathe. And it's within us all. For Unitarians, we do not generally have this idea that God, the divine, the something, the whatever you want to call it, we don't have the notion it is separate from us. The real beauty of this connection is this divine web of which we're all a part is both within and without. It's already in our gift to be part of this. It's within us to bring the divine into the world from within us. The trick is to catch it. To catch this notion of holiness, to allow its manifestation through us. That's the magical part. 
Just as love is intangible, just as a thirst for justice is ungraspable, just as a thought is impossible to see, and just as a dream might be considered impossible to bring to life, so can this idea of perfection and grace be summoned yet remain unseen to the eye, known only to the heart. So how do we shape our dreams? How do we shape that connection to a better world, to the divine? There's a phrase used by some evangelical churches to help people determine what is or isn't the right course of events when a decision is required. What would Jesus do? Now, Loyola and Akempis would have loved that one. It would have saved Thomas Akempis an awful lot of writing it. His imitation of Christ is, in fact, a hundred pages that could be distilled into four words. What would Jesus do? And as phrases and guides go, it's pretty good, really. Jesus mixed with the downtrodden. Jesus loved all. Jesus gave all his money to the poor. Jesus tried to heal division wherever he went. So it's not bad. And if you really tried to imitate, if we really tried to live our life the way we reported that Jesus lived his... I suspect our lives would be very different. But I'm not actually so sure that attempting to be Jesus is really the right answer after all. Nor is pretending to be Confucius, nor the Buddha, nor Martin Luther King, nor Nelson Mandela. It's not what they would do. What do you know in your heart, you should do. Not what would someone else do, but summoning all your powers of love and commitment to the world. What's your dream? What's the real action you should take? What can you bring to the world, starting now? And here's where the notion of our connection to the all that is plays its part. By recognising our connections, by understanding and feeling the great divine connection to all, through all and with all, we're surely empowering ourselves to make God-filled decisions to make this a better world. In an article, The Truth That Sets Us Free, the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy spoke of this important connection. He put it this way. Our liberty does not consist in the power of acting independently of the progress of life and the influences arising from it, but in the capacity for recognising and acknowledging the truth revealed to us and becoming the joyful participator in the eternal and infinite work of God in the world. Truth not only points out the way along which we ought to move, but reveals the only way in which to move. This freedom is the sole means of accomplishing the divine work of the life of the world. And dreams are our freedom.
everyone might daydream. And everyone knows in their heart, if they listen for the truth, the dreams that might make the world a better place. There was a film in the 1980s, fantasy science fiction film, really meant for children, called The Never Ending Story. It never quite made classic or even cult status, really. Yet the underlying premise was quite astonishing. On the face of it, it was about a small boy who reads a fantasy story, and as it develops, he realises he's one of the central characters. And decisions he makes as a reader will affect the ending of the story. And the continued existence of a place where fiction is real. Fantasia. And always remember, we're learning from fools and from sages. Yet the second story underlying this one is great. This fantasy world, Fantasia, is being destroyed. It's breaking up and disintegrating, slowly at first and then ever quicker. There is no obvious cause, and the destructive force is known as the nothing. And the hero, Atreo, asks towards the end of the film, why is Fantasia dying? And he's told in reply, because people have begun to lose their hopes and forget their dreams, so the nothing grows stronger. But what is the nothing? It's the emptiness that's left. It's like a despair that destroys the future world. Loyola tells us that the purpose of life is to serve God. Thomas Akempis reminds us of the need to deliver salvation today. Waiting around for a later date when things might be different is not good enough. And from Tolstoy, we might agree that salvation is brought through the delivery of the divine in the world by us, by you and me. Stephen Tyler advises that we live and learn from others no matter who they are. And like Akempis, Ask we recognise that our lives are short. He uses the phrase, dream until your dreams come true. Encouragement to keep dreaming of a better world. Our connections to the divine, to the universe, the planet, one another, our innermost selves, must surely provide the spark we need to dream that better world. And it's a matter of necessity we act upon it today. If we lose our hopes and our dreams... We'll invite a future with the nothing. And if we change our dreams, that's fine. Mr Daydream changed the dream whenever it started to go wrong. My daydreams change. From rock star and rocket man when I was younger to ministry ten years ago. And now, well, perhaps a dream of increasing Unitarian awareness in Kent... <laughs> perhaps being known as the first network of churches in Kent offering same-sex weddings who knows but what are your daydreams those things you can imagine and know inside you want to achieve and daydreaming is better than history 
If we don't dream and follow those dreams, it will never happen. And we ground those dreams in truth. The truth will show us the way, as Tolstoy said. Now, it's not unusual in Unitarian circles to quote Transylvanians. And I shall slightly shift this with a quote from a fictional Transylvanian. <laughs> Dr. Frank N. Furter, in the film Rocky Horror Picture Show, he said quite simply, don't dream it, be it. Or as Steven Tyler put it, dream on, dream on, dream until your dreams come true. Now, Steven Tyler may or may not be known to many of you, the scarves may have given a hint. Stephen Tyler is actually um, a writer, a musician, and he did write that into a song. And I'm going to play it because that's part of the daydream. <laughs>
Thank you.